Welcome to another edition of the Dave Pash Podcast. I'm your host, Arizona Cardinals announcer, ESPN broadcaster Dave Pash. Our guest this week is our 27th in year one of the Dave Pash Podcast. And it's J.J. Redick, who is one of the great college basketball players of all time. Terrific NBA player, 15 years in the league. Currently a podcaster, as well as an analyst for ESPN on several platforms. One of the reasons I wanted to get J.J. on was... On the heels of Duke's run to the Final Four, wanted to get JJ's thoughts on Mike Shashevsky's final season, what Coach K meant to JJ, his thoughts on Duke going forward. I was around him for four years. I never saw him have a bad day. That was the the biggest lesson that I learned from him, as well as being adaptable. And by adaptability as a coach, I mean year to year, he was willing to work with what he had. We'll also talk about the NBA playoffs and all the awards that will be announced here in the next few weeks, specifically with regard to the Phoenix Suns. Where does Devin Booker fit into the MVP conversation? What about Monty Williams for Coach of the Year? We'll also talk about JJ's podcast, The Old Man and the Three, how it started and where it's headed. We are presented by BetMGM, the official sports betting partner of the Arizona Cardinals, and by Gila River Hotels and Casinos. Sign up for BetMGM today using code CARDS1000 and get your first bet risk-free up to $1,000. New customer offer, paid in free bets. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 and over, Arizona only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP. Here's our guest on this week's Dave Pash podcast episode, J.J. Redick. So, J.J., since the last time I saw you, I watched Tenet again, (laughs) and I still can't figure it out. And you're telling me that Robert Pattinson, is that his name, the the lead actor who just played the lead in The Batman, which was really good, by the way. So you're telling me he's supposed to be the son because I still can't figure it out. And now I need to go back and watch it again, but I get more and more frustrated every time I watch it. So the the prevailing one of the prevailing fan theories about the movie is that Neil, played by Robert Pattinson, is is actually Max, and Max, of course, is the young son of Cat. Um, and I, I when I like something, I just deep dive, and we've talked about this uh, when we did our games together in March, but. In anything I do in life, when I like it, it just becomes an obsessive deep dive. So not only did I watch Tenet, I think, six times in the first 10 days it came out, but I spent hours on YouTube watching fan theory videos and spent some time on Reddit, of course. Um, but yeah, that's I mean, that's how I operate my life, unfortunately. I don't do that with everything. It's just the things that I'm really into. And one of those things that I'm really into is Christopher Nolan movies. Well, the way he does the movies, it makes you think and it makes you question it. And then you watch it again and you question the theory that you came up with. Like Inception, it seems like it's one or two things. Either it was a dream the entire time or it was real. But Tenet, there can be like 10 different theories about who is playing who and what's actually happening. Like I thought the first time I saw it that he dies. Like when they show Tenet. You know, that's when they're pulling his teeth out. And I thought yes. that he died. And this was just, again, some state that he's in, uh, you know, maybe on his deathbed. And I know Interstellar is your favorite, right? Because that's what you have on your emoji for Twitter. <laughs> my avatar, yes, my my digital avatar is is a picture of uh, Matthew McConaughey in his spacesuit. Um, yeah, Interstellar is my favorite Nolan movie. I, uh, I, I, when Inception first came out, that sort of was it for me. And I look, I was a fan of all of the Batman movies, specifically The Dark Knight, the second one in the trilogy that, that Nolan did. Uh, Prestige is amazing. Memento is amazing. Um, but for me, it's it's Interstellar. And, and I always say this, like to me, it's the greatest combination of storytelling, science, and obviously you can argue whether or not the science is real, but science and then... The visual effects, you know, and and to some degree, you can't beat that soundtrack. There's some moments where the music and what you're what you're seeing, the auditory and visual experience, the combination of both, those scenes are just they're chilling, man. It's I just I just love that movie. I'm very passionate about it. 
Well, this is technically a football podcast, but we have had, JJ, as I told you, a number of basketball-related guests. We've had an actor on. We've had Frank Caliendo on. Uh, but every time we have somebody on that's either not connected to football directly or has no connection whatsoever to football, I still at least ask who your team was growing up. And I think I know the answer to this one. If you played football, I think I remember you said something about your parents wouldn't let you, then they eventually did and you broke your wrist. So you couldn't play anymore. Is that right? Yeah. It's so I had asked them my whole childhood. Once I started playing sports, I started playing sports when I was eight, I got into baseball, I got into basketball and I was like, can I play football? My friends play football. Can I play football? And they, I was very frail. I was very skinny. Um, and they said no, and they said no. And then the summer between seventh and eighth grade, they said I could play football. Well, at nationals that year, I got undercut and I broke my right wrist. And right when school started, I was going to go out for the football team and I was playing pickup and I broke my left wrist getting undercut on the basketball court. So that pretty much ended my football career, but I was going to go play wide receiver. That was what I was going to play. Um, we, we already had a really good quarterback my, my high school randomly had this two-year stretch the class above me and then my class where we had a ton of division one athletes we were a relatively small public school in Roanoke Virginia but we had multiple ACC athletes a number of uh, low d1 um, football players we actually had an ACC football player that played at Wake Forest but we just had this influx of high level division one athletes and uh, I think I, I think I would have been fine at football. I, I don't think I would have continued to play football throughout high school because I would have gotten so many cheap. Somebody was going to try to take me out because at that point, by the end of my freshman year in basketball, you know, I was nationally ranked and and pretty good. And, um, you know, similar to Duke, the other schools probably didn't like me that much. And so somebody would have taken a dirty shot at me. And I, I probably would have I probably would have quit football. Baseball was my passion, though. Baseball was my passion. Really? Yeah, baseball was my passion. I I was I pitched, and um, it was the first sport I remember watching. I started watching basketball in '92, that Duke team, and then subsequently that Bulls playoff run when they beat the Blazers. But I started watching baseball the year prior, and I was a huge Atlanta Braves fan. Eventually, became a huge Indians fan because of Manny Ramirez, and then when he went to the Red Sox. I started watching the Red Sox and Pedro Martinez was my favorite pitcher. They went within two years, they both go to the Red Sox. And from that point on, I was a Red Sox fan. To answer your question about football, though, I never had a team. I, professional sports, a lot of times, you know, I just rooted for athletes. So I, I would root for specific players. Um, and Roanoke's in this weird place. We're, you know, we're three and a half hours from Charlotte. We're four hours from uh, Washington, D.C. So there wasn't a hometown team that I could root for. Sure. Well, obviously, things worked out for you with basketball. You became one of the greatest players in the history, not only of Duke, but of college basketball. Leaving Duke as the all-time leading scorer, not just there, but in the conference, four-year player. I know you didn't win a championship, but you accomplished so much there. And I know how much Coach K still means to you. It was really thrilling to watch that run. It was a neat story for everybody even if you're not a Duke fan because of what Mike Krzyzewski's meant to the game to see that team go to the final four. What do you, I'm sure you've spoken with him and I know you were at his last home game, which like the final four game, the national semifinal game was, uh, you know, was a loss in North Carolina. What do you think it meant to him, JJ, to get this group in his last go around to the final four? It was very meaningful and coach, always has he talked about it but he always has a next play next team mentality I was around him for four years I never saw him have a bad day that was the the biggest lesson that I learned from him as well as being adaptable and by adaptability as a coach I mean year to year he was willing to work with what he had there wasn't a system it was how do I make this group good and on top of that he was very invested in each group. And so I know with this particular group, a, a very young team, uh, obviously Wendell Moore was a junior, but mainly playing young players uh, to get to the Final Four was a huge deal. And the growth that they showed, 
you know, anytime you're a coach and you see your team grow in, in, a, in a period of time as they did over the last six weeks of the season was huge. That that Michigan State game in the in the to go to the Sweet 16, the Texas Tech game to go to the lead eight, those were two of the best Duke wins that I've seen in a long, long time in several years. Uh, so just I was really proud of the group, and of course, Carolina wins the game in Cameron, and they beat us in the Final Four. And by the way, I was at the Final Four game too. Fantastic basketball game, high level college basketball, and it's very sad as a duke fan because in the in in this rivalry for them to win probably the two biggest games ever in that rivalry the first time we've met in the tournament in the final four potentially coach's last game turns out to be his last game as well as his last home game for them to win those two games oh it's soul crushing i'll have to hear about it the rest of my life I certainly feel for you on that one. Uh, well, on the other side, I was just with Vince Carter the other night doing the game, and he was obviously upset about what happened Monday with yeah. losing. But there's a part of him that, and I think a lot of Carolina, former Carolina players and Carolina fans feel the same way. Yeah, we lost in the championship game, but you know what? We beat Duke. Well, <laughs> they can definitely hang their hat on that. And for a team that didn't necessarily have high expectations and ended up being an eight seed, which the ter- you know selection committee did a terrible job with seeding the ACC. I mean, Miami should not have been a 10 seed and Carolina should have been an eight seed. But to be an eight seed and get to the championship game, that, that team, huge accomplishment for them. Big moment for Hubert Davis. Really, 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 really happy for him. Um, you know, that, that, that rivalry, the the meaning of playing at a school, and now John Shire will get to go through this as, as Hubert's going through it right now, that playing in that rivalry, playing for that school, and then going back and coaching and getting to beat Duke, uh, just a huge moment for him. Huge moment. Well, as you and I talked about, I've worked with so many different analysts over the years, and one of my first analysts on college basketball at ESPN was Hubert Davis. I did two years with Hubert. We were doing a lot of games out west, and he was living in Chapel Hill, and then eventually went to studio and then wanted to get into coaching, went back working for, for Roy at North Carolina. And I was so happy for him. He's such an encouraging guy, positive guy. You can see his imprint on that team over the course of the season. I got to imagine when you're struggling and you're at a place like North Carolina and the pressure is high and your head coach is constantly encouraging you and being positive and then you start to see some results it builds confidence and I I don't feel like he's getting the credit he should when you take over for a legend like Roy Williams I mean imagine if John Shire next year goes to the championship game replacing Mike Krzyzewski what people will say about him I I feel like it will be disproportionate maybe to reality because both jobs are incredibly hard when you consider who you're replacing I always felt that playing at Duke, uh, it felt like living in a fishbowl. And at the time, college basketball, maybe in terms of sports culture, maybe was a, a little more popular just because of the one-and-done era has kind of changed college basketball. So my takeaway from this season, and specifically with, with March Madness, was that was one of the best – tournaments period that we've seen in a few years in terms of the upsets high level basketball clutch shot making we saw it on the women's side as well Um, a number of amazing games that I got to watch um, in in the women's tournament as well and so I, I think there's been a narrative around the demise of college basketball and I am so happy that we're getting back to high level college basketball and and I I think when this transfer portal thing happened, oh, it's going to ruin college. But what's happened as actually is there's older players. It's not just 18 and 19-year-old kids. And so you're seeing guys, the, the added value of staying in school and learning the game and, and being coached. And then you have this influx like Hubert Davis who are bringing modern concepts to basketball. I went on an epic, not an epic rant. Our video producer put that in the title of the video, but I went on a rant on the podcast this week with Kevin Durant about uh, what I view as, as archaic strategy in college basketball. 
And there's such a stark difference between watching a team that implements modern concepts offensively and defensively versus teams that don't. And so watching UNC, for me, was actually a real pleasure because I thought they ran great sets. They have great spacing. They have shooting. They have guards that can break you down off the dribble, a a rim running big. And then they ice everything in pick and rolls, which is another NBA concept. Like we need to, we need to sort of get some more modern concepts into college basketball. And so for a guy like Hubert Davis to bring that into it, I think is phenomenal. Well, most of my career at ESPN doing college basketball has been the one and done era. And I remember doing, I did Kevin Durant's McDonald's uh, all America game. And then a bunch of his games that first year at Texas, I remember doing a game at Texas Tech when Bob Knight was a coach there and Durant goes for 37 and 23 rebounds. And obviously he was so talented, he wasn't going to stay, he needed to go. And that's the case with most guys that are that, you know, anywhere in that same realm in terms of talent level, you just go. And I think a lot of people, like I struggle with trying to present, like every year it's a new team. Every year, college basketball, unless you're a diehard Duke fan or North Carolina fan, blue chip programs like Kentucky, Syracuse, even it's you kind of bounce around and it's hard to really get you fall in love with St. Peter's. The coach leaves. You're not going to remember the players names once they lose. Yeah. And, you know, back when you played, I mean, you, you got attached to guys and I know you didn't like being disliked, but there were a lot of people that were attached to you because they wanted to root against you. And it's really hard to do that now in college basketball. What are the things that people inherently enjoy about watching sports is watching athletes grow. They grow through adversity. They grow through failure. They grow through success. But watching growth over a three or four year period that's the attachment. You know, I, I, I remember watching this kid as a freshman. Now look at him as a senior. I remember when he rode the bench as a freshman. Now he's starting and he's all conference. There's something that's really enjoyable as a sports fan to see that. We, we have that, of course, in pro sports where guys have a much longer runway. And we can see that maturation and that growth. Um, Giannis is a great example of that. To watch him early in his career as the number one option in the playoffs and then to see him last year close out a finals with a 50 ball in game six there's that growth and it's it's fun to root for that and when you're seeing guys for one season 30 games it's it's harder to get that attachment and by the way the other thing I wanted to add is I I, I've always said that but guys should be able to leave out of high school go to the pros I, I really believe that the, the, the negative byproduct to me of the one-and-done era is if you're a highly touted, highly recruited McDonald's All-American, you go to a school, there's almost an expectation or an obligation to leave school early. We've created this sort of demarcation line now. It's like one-and-done era, okay, I go for a year, I leave. And really, it, it should be, culturally, it should be more about you leave when you're ready. Maybe some guys, that's high school. Maybe some guys, it is after your freshman year. Maybe you need another year. But now it's it's part of the culture that you go to school for a year. And, and Duke's had a number of guys do this where they go to school for a year and you know it doesn't pan out. I would have loved to see them stay for an extra year or two. Well, I'm glad you brought up you know the enjoyment for fans of seeing a player grow over the course of his or her collegiate career. And you've been pretty open and honest and humble about some of the mistakes that you made in college that maybe people at the time didn't know about. And I'm curious for you, when did you recognize that? Was it while you were at Duke after meetings with coach K uh, or was it once you were in the NBA and you grew up a little bit? When, when did I recognize the growth or yeah. Like when did you look back and say, wow, you know, I made, I made a mistake uh, when I was a freshman or so, I spent too much time focused <laughs> yeah. on other aspects besides basketball. Like when you and coach, when, when things started to click for you, when you kind of figured things out, did you know it at the time? Or did you have to look back once you're in the NBA and like, man, I could, I can pinpoint that moment at Duke when I figured it out. 
And here's why I figured it out. Right. I, I figured it out at the end of my junior year. And so I'll, I'll try to be very succinct with this explanation and story. But my whole life I got, you know, I was a massive Duke fan, diehard Duke fan. I wanted to go to Duke. I wanted to play at Duke. I get to Duke and everybody hates me. I, I'm, I'm taken aback by it. I, I t- take on this persona, this brash, cocky, arrogant persona on the court. That creates a cycle of more hatred, of more animosity towards me. And there was this feeling of, this isn't what I signed up for. I didn't, I didn't realize it was going to be this hard. I thought this was supposed to be fun. And so I went into uh, uh, what I would like to call a rebellious phase my sophomore year. And I wanted to quit. My sisters talked me out of it. I spent most of that season on antidepressants. Um, I was also behaving in a way that was unbecoming of a, of a, of a collegiate athlete, uh, period. Uh, much less a, a Duke basketball player where the standard is so high. And Coach and I had a number of meetings after my sophomore year that culminated in a meeting around May 20th. And he brought me into, into his office with Wojo and Collins. And it was it was a come-to-Jesus moment. And he laid out a plan for me. I started seeing a therapist uh, weekly. Um, they gave me a schedule uh, to the hour. And I stuck to that schedule the entire summer. I went from about 220 pounds at the end of my sophomore year. I started uh, first practice weighing about 192. I was in unbelievable shape. I won won every conditioning drill that offseason. And I got National Player of the Year, ACC Player of the Year. And there was a moment in, in Coach's hotel room in Austin, Texas, after we lost in the Sweet 16, where two things happened. I realized that it worked, and I realized that Coach and I were now friends, that we weren't just player-coach. We were real friends, and I lived that out the rest of my career. There was no going back. I saw what being diligent and being disciplined and being fully invested and being fully committed, what the result of that was. Now, I didn't always get the result that I wanted, but I knew that that was my benchmark. That was my standard that I had to have in order for me to play at a high level. So you leave Duke, you come to the NBA, you're the 11th overall pick. And I remember when you came into the NBA and there were a lot of people, and I'm sure you heard it, that said, J.J. Redick, great shooter in college. You know, is that going to translate to him being around in the NBA for a long period of time? Is he just going to be a role player? Uh, Can he do anything else besides shoot? And you played 15 years. You had a great NBA career, and I'm curious, JJ, do you think you would have lasted as long in the NBA and had as much success as you did in the NBA if you didn't go through that transition at Duke and didn't learn from those mistakes that you talked about at Duke? No chance. Now, I think I would have played in the NBA, and if I had gone to University of Florida or the University of Virginia or Texas or Stanford or any of the other schools that were really recruiting me, I, I would have had a good college career and and I would have played in the NBA. I would not have had the success that I had in college or the success that I had in the NBA if I hadn't gone through what I went through. And so I'm grateful for it. And you know, there was there was a lot of there was a lot of guilt. There was a lot of low moments. There was a lot of self-doubt. There was that in my NBA career too. But I intuitively understood at that point what it took. And so there was always that that work to go back to. There was always that discipline, getting my sleep, eating right, being in the gym, taking care of myself, Um so if the results weren't there, if the self-doubt was there, if the guilt was there over missing a shot late or letting my man score, whatever it was, I just went back to work. And I went back to the things, I guess they were my grounding principles of my career. And so to learn that at 19, that was the biggest boost I ever could get for, for having success in the NBA. One of the things I've appreciated in, in the short time working with you and then just kind of watching you operate when I see you in the studio is 
you take the craft of broadcasting seriously. I, 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 when I listen to your podcast, like you sound like you've been doing this for 25 years. I said the same thing to you after we did our two games together. It just, you're a natural, but you take it seriously and you care. And I, I know this was something you were thinking about doing while you were still playing, but ultimately when you made the decision to stop playing, something you had been doing for 20 plus years, more than 20 if you include high school, was it, was it a difficult decision? Was there a transition period where you were missing, you know, being with the guys on the road, uh, you know, playing cards on the road, um, <laughs> talking wine, movies with your teammates? Or do you still miss that? I still miss that. I'll always miss that. And I don't know that I can replicate that in any other way in my life. There's something that's very sacred to me about being on a team. It's weird because I fell in love with basketball as a as a homeschooler who would get his work done early in the morning and have the rest of my day because I had, you know, my parents didn't make a lot of money, so both my parents worked, you know, my mom would teach us some days I would go to work with her and do my work there. One of five kids. So there was a lot of autonomy that I had in my childhood and I had to fill time and I liked going out on a basketball court and shooting for hours and that's initially how I fell in love with it. And then I started playing AAU basketball and I would travel and we'd stay in hotel rooms and I'd stay up late with people that came from a diff different background of, of me and we'd talk about life. And I did that for 30 years. I made so many great friendships. I had so many great moments off the court. I'll miss that. I'll miss, I, you mentioned card games. I, I, I miss the action. <laughs> I miss the action. I miss the action a lot. Um, and it was... It was, I was ready to retire for a while. It wasn't about that. It was about just squeezing every last bit I could out of my career and, and my inherent love for the game. I wanted to keep doing it. The decision to retire ultimately came down to a you know, time value proposition. You know, what, what, do, what is it I want to do with my time? And, and because my kids were getting older and because I had missed so much over the last few years and specifically in the bubble year, once I started doing those exercises about being in a hotel room in Cleveland in February versus taking my kid to Florida for spring break, <laughs> it became pretty clear to me that it was time. And, and I was fried physically, emotionally, mentally. I, I mean you know, my wife and I always talk about this. Like I, even when I was home, I was still thinking about the game and practicing and training. It was just, I, it was all encompassing all the time. And I was ready for a break. I was ready for change. And I had no idea that I'd be busier in retirement somehow than I was as a player. And so the, the camaraderie and the team thing is what I'll miss the most. And then the second thing, which I'm still navigating, and I think it takes time to navigate. But the second thing is I, we've talked about the structure. I, you know, I need structure in my life. And I enjoyed the structure of being a professional athlete so much. I, I enjoyed knowing every day where I was supposed to be, when I was going to train, when I was going to go to sleep, when my meals were going to be. I sometimes forget to eat now. You know, I'd be like, oh, it's 5 o'clock. I forgot to eat lunch, you know. Um so I, I, I really, I, those are the two things that obviously I'll, I miss shooting a basketball, but those are the two things that I'm, I'm still working my way through. And I look up, maybe I'll never be able to replicate that first thing ever again, but uh, great, certainly grateful that I got to do it for so long. Days like this, maybe you miss it more when you're spending time <laughs> looking at tile and flooring for your house. <laughs> it was enjoyable. I'll, it was enjoyable. It was enjoyable. I learned a lot about, uh, about limestone today <laughs> your podcast the old man and the three when did you come up with the idea how did it start and what are your plans for because obviously given your connection to so many different current players I, I remember the game I did with you in Philly uh, the embrace that you had with Joel Embiid I can just see the love that he has for you and all the players that come up to you uh, clearly, you built some deep friendships and great relationships with a lot of guys. What what are the plans ultimately, long term, for the podcast? You know, you can't. You, it's hard to have. It's hard to have a podcast. We we talked about this. It's hard to have a podcast without an audience. 
So I don't think about anything else besides building an audience. And I, in some ways, got lucky because of timing. I was the first active player to have a podcast. So there was a novelty in that. Um, working at the ringer and, and, you know, being associated with, with the scale of that company in sports and, and media culture was important. We launched the old man and the three. We, we started our own company. We launched the old man and the three. We own the, we own the podcast. We launched that in the middle of the bubble. There was no other player that was doing a podcast out of the bubble. Like there's just been a bunch of things that I've just gotten lucky on. I, there's no, some, there's not a grand vision ever for the podcast. It's something that I enjoy doing. And what I realized about a year and change into doing the old man of the three is I really just enjoy basketball. I enjoy talking about basketball. So we, we sort of made a strategic shift in late October. Let's just focus on NBA content. Let's focus on having guests on that are associated with the NBA, mainly players. And we've seen our audience grow because of that. So you know, we're going to continue to sort of use that model to continue to grow our audience. You know, I think about when you start something in media, it's it's driven really by two things. It's driven by content. Do you have good content? And can you build a community? And that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. And whatever comes of that, that's great. You know, um, Besides the podcast, there's a lot of other things that I'm working on actively right now, uh, including a, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but it would, it's a TV show. It's a TV show. So we're working on it. It would be, it's called Eat, Pray, Dunk. And, you know, we're, it's, it's about capturing the essence of a player. It's about trying to answer the question of why sports matter, why athletes are who they are. We do that to some degree on on the show, but uh, on the podcast. But this would be a um, a more a more visual experience, I think. And uh, so we're ta- we're talking with different uh, high level production companies, streaming services, etc., uh, to try to try to get this thing made. Um, but you know, it, I it's funny because you mentioned the media stuff, and I didn't even. I didn't plan on getting into media and I was hesitant to even start at ESPN. Um, and, and Dave Roberts, who, who, you know, Dave was, uh, more than accommodating with just creating a schedule for me this, this year that wasn't too taxing because I was like, I'm going to take a year off, but then I'm like, I got a podcast that I got to do weekly and I, I need something else to fill my time. And so it, it kind of all happened organically. I, I, Dave, my, my life plan is not like I wanted to be an NBA player. I put everything into it. And right now it's just like, just flow with the river. You know, where, I don't know where the river is going to take me. I don't know where I'll be in three years. Do any of us really know? <laughs> no, we think we do. We think we can control it. But no, we exactly. certainly you, you've had Chris Paul on and, you know, this podcast, as I said, is primarily Arizona Cardinals based. Uh, we do branch out uh, beyond just the NFL. Um, and obviously people that, you know, a lot of people that live in Arizona or Cardinal fans are also Suns fans. So, uh, we had Mikel Bridges on, we had James Jones, Al McCoy, they've all been on. And with the run to the finals last year, and then having the best record in the NBA this year, there is a, there's an appetite for Suns content. And because you probably know Chris Paul as well as anybody Maybe you can put your finger on it more than we can, because the transformation of the organization from when Chris, prior to Chris's arrival to what they are now, it's remarkable. I'm not sure we've seen anything quite like this. Like you see a player, when Kurt Warner came to the Cardinals, he led them to a Super Bowl. But it wasn't like they went 15 and one, but because of Kurt, and how good he is, and obviously there were other talented players around him, we went to the Super Bowl. The next year, which was Kurt's last year, had even a better record and ended up losing to the Saints, who win the Super Bowl. But it wasn't like you went from the worst team in football to the best. The Suns were the worst team, yeah. close to the worst team, if not the worst. They're not the best team. Now, they won a championship. They were close last year. Maybe they win it this year. And everybody tries to say, well, here's why 
they're different. Here's what Chris Paul brings to the table. But, but you know this. You played with him. You know him well. What do you think it is that goes beyond what we can see, mm-hmm. the fan and, and, and the media? Well, I'll, I'll answer that question. But there's another really important ingredient to the formula for their success over the last few seasons, and that's Monty. Um, because Monty, in some ways, is they're, – they're not the same but in some ways is very similar to Chris. The attention to detail, the basketball intelligence, um, Monty has that at the highest level. And I think the combination of them, Chris, of course, being an extension of a coach on the floor is really important. In regards to Chris, he he is as demanding – of a teammate as I've had. And I loved that. He has a way of getting your best every night. There was, there was no, and not that I did this ever, but like for all of us, there was no, I'm going to go into the game and half-ass like, because Chris was there. And so he wasn't going to half-ass it. And he was going to tell you if you were half-assing it. So there's, there's an accountability to Chris as a teammate and as a player because he does it and because his agenda ultimately is to win. Now, there's shenanigans. Chris is Chris, you know. He's going to he's going to talk to other players. He's going to he's going to do the rip through move and draw fouls. He's going to talk to the refs. Like there's other things Chris, you know, Chris is an annoying little pest. We all know that. But but in terms of the agenda, Chris is as competitive of a player as I ever played with. And he's an incredible strategist. And we talked about this, I think, when he was on the podcast, but I know I've mentioned it in in other episodes. Chris is probably the best cards player that I've played against. You know, in anything he does, he figures out how to win. What gives him the best chance to win? I saw this great graphic. You may have seen this as well on Twitter. You know, New Orleans, uh, that franchise, franchise wins when he was there. Franchise record for wins when he was there. Houston, franchise record for wins when he was there. Phoenix, franchise record for wins when he was there. Clippers, franchise record for wins when he was there. So although he hasn't won a ring, and I think they're the clear favorites to win one this year, he is as good of a winner as we've had in this era of sports. Now, he doesn't have the championship. I get that, and that may be a controversial thing to say, but he is as good of a winner as we've had in sports. So I have a vote for MVP and and all the NBA awards that I have to turn in here, and I'm waiting to the last possible second to turn it in. As you should. That's you know what you're being the res- a responsible voter, and I appreciate that. <laughs> the, the money for for you guys that now is attached to these awards, which I think, by the way, I know Adam Silver, the commissioner, came out and said NBA players aren't playing enough games. They're trying to figure out ways to fix that. A solution that I think would would work, or at least would help, would be if you put for the voters, you say, okay, to, to be the MVP, you have to play at least 68 games or whatever, or to make all NBA, you have to play 68 games. You can't vote for somebody if they play fewer than 68 games. Um, there is an incentive now because there's so much money attached to contracts. If you make all NBA, maybe that will result in guys playing more games because they want to make sure they're getting their max contracts. So, so I, I don't hate the idea, but in any sort of games played uh, scenario, context matters. You know, if, if a guy breaks his wrist and misses a month of the season and he only ends up playing in 65 games, but that team has the best record and he's got great stats, that guy should probably still be all NBA. You know, the, the, the context matters. My, my change, my change to, the all NBA voting is just to have the 15 best players have three teams of five, but make it about the, the, the five best players should be first team all NBA. This, the, the next five players should be second team all NBA, we, we, the positional stuff. And then now they're complicating things. Like why, why is Joel Embiid and Jokic? Why are they, can you vote for them as forwards? They haven't played a minute of forward all season. Like, they're centers, but you know what? They both should be first team all NBA. And there's a good chance that one of them won't be. Um, the other part that's tied to it, of course, is that you referenced is 
max contract extensions, being eligible for a, a super max. That's tied to all NBA. And then and then the rookie super max, which you have to reach, you know, obviously, you know, in your rookie contract to 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 uh, sort of trigger that that super max. So guys will sign for it'll be reported two hundred million dollars, but if they don't reach it, they get one sixty five. Trey Young's a great example of this. You know, he's eligible for the super max. That's what he signed. Um, but if he <clears throat> doesn't make all NBA this year, he loses out on thirty five million. This is what happened to Jason Tatum. Jason Tatum went on a long rant on the podcast about this. Um, this is something that was collective collectively bargained by our union. I, I don't I don't know that there's a solution to that outside of renegotiating that with the NBA. Um, and I, I think where where players get frustrated is in some of the voting, what I think doesn't get appreciated by the players is how serious the voters are taking it. You guys all know about these clauses in the contract. You know, Howard Beck, when the pod came out with Jason and his rant kind of <clears throat> went viral, Howard Beck, he's like, Jason, I don't like it either. You know, he, he tweeted, I, I don't like it either. I don't want my vote to be tied to whether or not you get the money. Because look, you can't tell me that Jason Tatum in his fourth year didn't do his job. He did a max level worthy job. And he should have gotten paid according to his market, which was a, as a max player. So... Outside of renegotiate, I don't think you can you can do it. The all NBA stuff this year is really interesting, and and you, you know you mentioned uh, you mentioned Chris. Uh, I know when, off the air we we're talking about Steph. It's like where do the, where do we figure out how some of these players go? And Trey Young is a great. He's had an unbelievable season, an unbelievable season. He should be all NBA, um, but it's really hard. It's really hard. The MVP this year is probably as hard as it's been in a long time trying to figure that out. So I don't have Trey Young on my all NBA team as of this moment. And if I end up not voting that way, I, I feel badly that it could cost him $35 million, but looking at their record and you know, some players on some other teams that maybe the numbers aren't as gaudy, but their teams are better. I mean, to your point, you, you only have six guards the front court, you can fudge it a little bit because, like, I've got Giannis, Embiid, and Jokic all first team. Yeah, none of those guys have played. I mean, Embiid never plays forward. I mean, you could you could make the case that Jokic, he's he's whatever. He's a guard. He's a forward. He's a center. But right, Demar Derozan will probably make an All NBA team, but he'll make it as a forward, even though nominally he functions as the primary playmaker in the half court. This is why you know the the, the defining lines of position. Has have been so skewed um, because of the way the modern NBA works now, which is why I think the solution is you just vote for the 15 best players. My comment on Trey and, and my comment towards the MVP as well. We talked about this last night on Countdown uh, with Jalen. Is you know perceived value is relative to expectations, and I think with Trey this year because of what was a surprising run last year, there were more expectations. Uh, on Trey and the Hawks this year, and they probably underperformed to that. But he has not. He has not. And I, he's probably one of the six best guards in the NBA. Problem is, as I, you know, we brought up my my Giannis comment uh, on the Joel Pod when we were off air, and you know, the problem is, I said this on the pod. There's too many good players. <laughs> like, there's too many good players. I can remember even in my career, five six years ago, we're like. Ah oh, man, there's 13 guys that are really all NBA, and there's like five guys that you're kind of like, I could I could fit them in. I could I could make an argument to put them in the last two spots. Now there's like 20 guys, and you're like, how do we how do we make this fair and fit it in 15 slots with positions? It's tough. It's very tough. Well, I've already kept you much longer than I was anticipating, but I do want to just get a couple more in here. How do you think you'll? If you had to pick the MVP, where how do you think you'll land? Like, does it is it based on Devin Booker to me deserves consideration? Now, I don't think that's how I'm going to vote. Number one, but he's going to be in my top five. I think ultimately it's Jokic, Giannis, and Embiid. But there's no real criteria. Like, 
I'm inconsistent. When I look at how I vote for MVP or coach of the year, rookie of the year, even the all NBA teams, I'm I'm inconsistent. Most voters are. Most voters are. Most voters are. You know, with books specifically, there have been nine previous players that have averaged 25, 5, and 5 on a team that had a winning percentage of 800 or better. I think the Suns are a little under 800, and he's averaging 4.9 assists. So he he could end up being the 10th, but he's right there to be the 10th player ever. Eight of the previous nine guys that have done that have won MVP. Look, Book is a deserving MVP. In any other year, he's probably the MVP. The problem is the three most dominant players have had historical seasons in Giannis, Embiid, and Jokic. Historical. You know, the, the numbers don't lie. And Book is going to get hurt because of advanced stats. That's just a reality. He's third on his team in win shares. Mikel Bridges has more win shares than Devin Booker. That's just how analytics work. And more than enough voters now factor in analytics. So when you talk about analytics, well, then the clear guy is Jokic. Uh, when you talk about narrative, it's probably Embiid. And you talk about, <laughs> you know, mo. I test in moments right now. It feels like it's Giannis, one hundred percent. I test in, and 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 the last two three weeks of the season. When you talk about those moments, those MVP moments, that that three against the Nets, whatever it may be, it's probably Giannis. I saw. I tend to land on today, whatever it's you know Thursday the seventh of April. I tend to land on. F- a fluctuation between Jokic and Giannis for MVP. And it sucks because there's like, there's legitimately four guys that should be MVP. How many takes when you did the state farm commercial and you're the mad professor talking to the coffee pot for people that have seen that it's very good, by the way, how many takes did you need? We filmed a bunch of different lines I had about 10 or 12 lines and then we filmed all of the lines at three different camera angles so there were probably 40 or 50 takes total the other thing to note is in the in the video in the final cut I should say in the final commercial there's a there's about an inch left of coffee in that coffee pot well I spent about 20 minutes doing takes where instead of talking to the coffee pot, I would chug the coffee. So that was my second pot of coffee that I was on. And it was lukewarm coffee. It was room temp coffee. But look, I was just my, <laughs> I, I, uh, I didn't look at the call sheet till I got in the car to go. I, it was a busy week. We had Draymond in San Francisco that week. I flew to LA. I did NBA Today on Tuesday. I did NBA Today on Wednesday. And I, and I was set to go film the commercial. Uh, right after my, my second uh, day at NBA Today. So I did not have time to look at the call sheet. And I, I looked at the call sheet on the five-minute ride over to where we were shooting the, the commercial. And it's like, I'm, by the way, my hair's done. I've got, you know, I've got my, my makeup. My groomer came by. I've got my makeup done. Uh, I'm wearing a great suit. Just looking, looking like I'm ready for a photo shoot. And I read the call sheet. It's like, JJ is is manic. He's de- he's disheveled. His shirt's unbuttoned. His hair's messed up. We're gonna draw black circles under his eyes. I'm like, oh god, I did not know any of this. So there's this moment. I'm like, do I just, I just gotta lean in. I just gotta lean into the crazy guy, and I went for it. <laughs> you really had to act because that's not you. Like it's the anti JJ. No, no, it's not me at all. Um, but I thought, I, you know, the the the, the director uh, was. Uh, he had the same voice and laugh as Charlie Day from uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And there's that gif of Charlie Day with the board uh, where he's like pointing the thing. And uh, I was like, that's that's my inspo, Charlie Day. I'm going for that. <laughs> All right, last one. I had uh, during the football season Carson Palmer and Drew Stanton on on the podcast together. They were both together here with the Cardinals at the same time. And asked them towards the end, because they're big wine guys, as are you. And I asked them towards the end, okay, for people that are listening that maybe, you know, don't want to, you know, spend a thousand dollars on a bottle of wine, give me some good value buys. And I think Carson threw out like opus one. I'm like, that's not people listening, they're not gonna, that's that doesn't qualify. 
I don't know if you've got anything because you. I know you're white burgundy, red burgundy guy, but you'll have, what you'll drink anything, right? But I know you have some particulars. I do, I do. Um, so I, I'll, I'll say this: Albarino, it's a native to Portugal, but in Northwest Spain, it's called Albarino in Spain, Alvarino in in, Por- in Portugal, but in Northwest Spain, Albarino is a is a white wine. Good Albarino, like high level Albarino, is under thirty bucks, and you can find good bottles for fifteen to twenty bucks. Um, that's that's to me is like an ultimate value. Sit by the pool, um, maybe you're going to go grab some oysters. Bottle Albarino, phenomenal. In red wine, I think one of the greatest values is Brunello de Montalcino, and you can find phenomenal producers in great years. Uh, for 50 bucks, 55 bucks. And look, I know for a lot of people, that's insane for a bottle of wine. Well, let me tell you about Burgundy. <laughs> um, and look, I, I, there's a bunch of um, people that ask me for wine recommendations. To me, the, the best place to start in Burgundy, because that's what I collect. That's what ultimately, if I'm going to spend money on wine... And I, and I have a collection, you know, I have a seller, all that stuff. But when I say I'm going to buy and I'm going to spend my hard-earned money on wine, I'm going to spend it on Burgundy. That, to me, is the greatest wine in the world. I love red Burgundy, which is made from Pinot, and I love white Burgundy, which is made from Chardonnay. And a lot of people say, I don't, I don't like Pinot. I don't like Chardonnay. That's because you're drinking swill made in America, all right? You're drinking swill. You're drinking mass-produced swill. But the best value to me in Burgundy is there's four classifications of, of Burgundy. There's uh, Grand Cru, which is you know expensive at, at every level. Premier Cru, where you can find some decent deals. Um, and then there's Village and Regional. And so if you see Bourgogne on a bottle, that is a Regional. That is the fourth sort of bottom tier. If you go up one level to a Village-level red or a Village-level white made by a great producer, you can find phenomenal wine in the like 80 to 90 range. Again, I know that's crazy, but if you can find like a, a Fourier or a, you know, Lerois, which is, you know, their Grand Cru's go for thousands of dollars. Uh, she skirts the rules. And when she makes her village level and, and, um, and regional white Burgundy, she takes the leftover grapes from the Grand Cru and Premier sites and she mixes it in. Now, she's not technically allowed to do that, but she sort of runs Burgundy. And, uh, and that, so that to me is like the ultimate value. It, it tastes like a $500 bottle of wine. You spend 80 bucks. Well, it's certainly more in depth than we got from Carson. So (laughs) appreciate it, man. Thanks so much, JJ, for doing this. Always fun. Great stuff from JJ talking about his relationship with Mike Krzyzewski how Coach K helped J.J. turn his life around at Duke and how that translated into a lengthy NBA career and now a successful new life as a podcaster and broadcaster. We are presented by BetMGM, the official sports betting partner of the Arizona Cardinals and by Gila River Hotels and Casinos. We will get back into the football space next week on the Dave Pash Podcast. We talk with Daniel Jeremiah, from NFL Media. He's also the radio analyst for the Los Angeles Chargers. We'll talk about the offseason for the Arizona Cardinals so far and look ahead to the 2022 NFL Draft. Thanks again to J.J. Redick, and thanks to you for listening to another edition of the Dave Pash Podcast.